And this is Bruno with the Works Podcast. And I let Mick Jagger help me here bringing in uh, bringing in one of my favorite people in racing. And I've been waiting to do this podcast with one of my favorite people in the world, Barry Meadow. And I got him online right now. Barry, great to talk to you. How are you, Bruno? Nice to hear from you. <laughs> we're, we're, we've both been futzing around trying to get this to work, and now it's like, oh, yeah, nice to see you and hear from you. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Let me, let me put it this way. I'm about 110 years old, so anything, uh, anything involving technology is a mystery to me. Well, you are Mr. Confidence, and you're the author of Skeptical Handicapping. And I love the book. Um, I read it within in three days, and um, it really helps because I know you a little bit. <laughs> We've known each other thirty years, and I've even I even showed up at one of your stand up comedy routines and still kept you as a friend. Uh, so, so, so you were the one that was laughing. I knew it was somebody. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was me, and you didn't pay me for it either. Uh, you know, but uh, it was at that restaurant over in. Um, Above Redondo Beach yeah. in Palos Verdes. Yeah, it's Pal- Palos Verdes. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yes, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I've always enjoyed your friendship. How did you get about you? You you you've written books before. Yeah, you wrote a a fantastic book. Tell people a little bit about the books you have written leading up to Skeptical Handicapping. Well, probably my best known book is called Money Secrets of the Racetrack, which was written originally in 1988, and it gave uh, ideas on how how to find value in exactus and how to make pick three tickets out, how to play the pick six, not using one giant ticket, uh, how to figure out if a horse is uh, an overrated place, all kinds of things involving betting. It had nothing in there about handicapping. So uh, I figured out after 30 years of, uh, I was gambling full time for almost uh, more than 25 years, uh, I figured it was time to write something on handicapping. I also wrote a book called Blackjack Autumn, in 1999, which was about my quest to play blackjack in every casino in Nevada, and at that time there were almost 200 of them, and uh, I did that as well. So I like I've, I've been combining writing with gambling uh, my whole life, but most of my income has been from the gambling part, not the writing part. Now, one thing that I loved about skeptical, and and we're going to give people opportunity at the end of the show to be able to buy those books, and I think they're well worth it. Uh, Barry, you've got a. I've sat in your office. Uh, we actually had some products we did together back in the '90s. Um, you really helped me shape myself as a handicapper, as a as a as a businessman in the game. And I never quite uh, quite thanked you for that. Um, uh, you, you're a genius in my mind of how you approach things. Um, Thus, Mr. Confidence. How did it, and I love that part in the book. How did Mr. Confidence come about? Well, uh, the problem is when you have a lot of confidence, sometimes that borders on I'm so smart I can do anything. So I've tried to do many things in my life. Luckily, most of them seem to have worked out. I was, uh, I made a bunch of money with these online casinos when they had good promotions. I played the betting exchanges for years and did very well doing that. And uh, I, I played the harness racer for five years before I did the, before I did the thoroughbreds. And 
while I didn't make a ton of money betting the Hornets races, uh, my wife and son and I never got evicted either, so I guess I did okay. And then the thoroughbreds uh, took over, and I did that for the last, uh, well, I did that for more than about 23 years before I retired in 2011. So I, I always figure if somebody else can do something, why can't I do it? And I just have to figure out how to do it, how to learn how to do it, and then do it. So, you, you brought up a point that that your your confidence level sometimes maybe overshot what you wanted to do, which is all of us. Um, however, you made money the online casinos. Please share. Yeah, they had a thing in in those. Days. This was in the early two thousands. Uh, they had a deal where they would give you bonuses for depositing and playing through a certain amount of money. So. Uh, I and a number of other people quickly figured out that uh, the bonuses they were giving were more than you could expect to lose playing the game. If you use, let's say, basic strategy, playing blackjack, you might lose half a percent, but the bonuses might be worth two or three or four percent. So as a result, uh, by playing literally the more than 100 online casinos and doing these promotions often, sometimes they allow you to do these promotions month to month, uh, there was a bunch of money to be made. Eventually, the casinos wised up and uh, quit offering those excellent bonuses. But there was a period of time where those were available, and uh, I took advantage of that. Uh, I always like situations where I call them the wild, wild west. Let's say, for example, you've got a new track opening, or you've got uh, racing on a different type of surface, or something where people are not you know, a little slow to figure out what's going on. So by doing studying an organization, if you figure things out before other people, you can take advantage and make uh, make some money. So you've never held a nine to five job uh, at all, have you? Well, uh, it, it really didn't suit me. I mean, I was in the I was in the military for four years, and even while I was in the military, I was saying, you know what, I don't want to do this particular assignment, but I will do such and such. So you learn quickly how to negotiate and figure out things. Even when I was, you know, 21, 22 years old, and that has uh, carried over. Nine to five really doesn't suit me. I'm not really a people person. I'm not really a politics person. Uh, but what I do like is sitting in my office, working on racing cards, figuring out what to do, going to the track, or in the latter years, it was staying in front of my uh, TV set at home with my exchanges on my screen and the exact probables and things like that, and then calling in the bets or doing them online. Uh, I like working by myself, and uh, racing suited me for that. How does uh, talk about the exchanges? How did they benefit Barry Meadow? Well, exchanges were the greatest thing ever invented for players because when you have an exchange, you, usually if there were nine races on the card, I'd have pretty uh, you know reasonable opinions about three of them where I might make bets, and I'd have to pass the other six. When the exchanges came in, you usually have some opinion about every race, even if it's, I don't like the third choice, or, or there's eight to one shot, should be 20 to one. So you have opinions only in almost every race, and so you can take advantage of it on the exchanges by either uh, playing against horses, which is usually what I did, or by playing on horses if you had a better price on the exchange than you did at the track. If the horse was two to one at the track, and three to one on the exchange, why would I bet it through the track? That would make no sense. And if I thought a horse should be 10 to one and he's up on the board at five to one, that would be a good play against for me on the exchange. So the exchanges are wonderful. Unfortunately, the only place you can play exchanges legally now in the U.S. is New Jersey, 
otherwise we bore you, which is sad because uh, at one time there were four exchanges going, two of them went out of business. Uh, the other one uh, doesn't have an exchange anymore, they just take uh, bets. And Betfair is the only one left, which is too bad because it was a tremendous boon to players. The problem is that the uh, once again the horsemen stood in the way of things, saying, well, we're afraid uh, uh, we're going to lose a lot of money if you go to the exchanges, which was never the case. It was completely bogus because all it did is actually increases your handle because you're seeing more ways to bet. And when there's more ways to bet, you can spend more money, and that's good for everybody. Why? I mean, in Europe, you have all these exchanges. You have uh, betting across the board for sports, horse racing, anything that crawls, anything that goes on. What is the problem in America with people well, well, getting well, bets then? We've got 50 you know, state racing commissions, maybe not 50, but every, every state we're racing in legalized has its own commission. They have its own set of rules. The horsemen's organization traditionally have been mathematically challenged, uh, and they don't understand how this stuff could benefit them. And so their thing is, if you just raise the takeout, we'll make more money. Why would we do anything else? Which makes no sense whatsoever. Obviously, if you, uh, if you sell a hamburger for $50, uh, you're not going to sell too many hamburgers. If you sell it for a dollar, you'll sell a ton of hamburgers. So somewhere in the middle, there's some price at which it makes sense to sell the hamburgers. And so uh, there's been very, very little uh, uh, buy-in by uh, the horsemen. And the problem, the horsemen have, have large say over what the state commissions do. So the state commissions, who are run by politicians and lawyers, they don't know what's going on either. So as a result, uh, players are constantly disappointed by what the higher-ups in this business do. Skeptical handicapping. How did that come about? Well, I've got dozens and dozens of handicapping books in my library, and the problem with most of them is not that they don't have useful information on them, but the information is not statistically based. It's usually one guy's experience, one guy's opinion. And so, say, for example, uh, class drop close jockeys, which is a, is a great angle. Look at these two long shot winners I had by following that. Well, that doesn't tell us anything. It doesn't tell us maybe maybe the guy lost 98 other races and were doing that. Uh, maybe the horses he played were underlays, and so it wasn't a very good strategy. Maybe uh, there's other things that are not as easily found that people should concentrate on. So I was kind of disappointed about the racing literature. There's a lot of stuff I learned when I was playing, and I said, why is this stuff in the book? So uh, I always said, I'd rather have a, a one piece of evidence versus a thousand anecdotes, because anecdotes really don't mean much. Mostly, uh, uh, you learn stuff by data, and that people are coming around to that now. There's been a tremendous explosion in computer programs and software development, and of course, these computerized uh, robotic wagering teams who get rebates by playing every track in the country. So uh, there's been a shift from here's my opinion to here are the facts, and so for this book, I, I contacted Ken Massa, who has a great reputation for horse racing analytics, he's had a company for more than 25 years based just on uh, doing research, and uh, we got together and we looked at every race in North America between 2014 and 2017, that was 168,000 races, and uh, we looked at what angles uh, looked better than others, and what about what people believe is what people believe true. Uh, obviously, with a 20% takeout, not too many angles are going to be profitable on, on their face. 
but some things can lead us down proper research paths and other things are a complete waste of time. So we wanted to do this just strictly from data and not just opinions, although a lot of the book is where I discuss how to analyze these things and why and how the game works because uh, you play this long enough, you learn a lot of stuff about the game. Just uh, as you have from when you first started, you, don't, you know a lot more now than you did when you were first, uh, when you were first clocking. Well, and speaking of, uh, of that, uh, Barry was instrumental in helping me do Bruno workouts, exposing the mystery in 2005, and he even gave me a little testimonial, um, uh, spending a day out on the track with me and, and watching me clock, and uh, that was uh, real special for me, Barry. Thanks again. And, and Barry, well, the one thing... You know, Go ahead. I want, let me interrupt for a second. Uh, you know, what you embody is the thing that I have most importantly in my book, which is you have to know what you're looking at. And for me, it was always replays. I studied replays very, very carefully so I could figure out what individual horses like and don't like, what situations favor them and what don't favor them. And you do it through watching horses, uh, uh, you know, on the track and the workouts. And if you know what you're looking at, you're going to look at things that other people don't look at. And that's what you are very good at, and that's what I get was good at, although in different aspects of the game. If you don't know what you're looking at and you're simply looking at numbers on a page, your chances of, of making money are not huge. I'll just give you an example or two. Horses with high speed figures, while they jump off the page, everybody can see that. Those horses are over bad. You're not going to make any money determining who had the best speed figure last time or or which jockey has the highest percentage. Uh, but those horses get over bad. You're not going to make any money looking for trouble because it's, uh, it's over bad. Okay, here's something. Last race finish position. If you bet every horse who finished first last time versus every horse who finished fifth, there was no difference in ROI whatsoever. So looking for stuff that's not obvious and knowing what you're looking at are extremely important factors in making money at this game. Well, what was interesting is um, one of the comments that I've always made is that I always felt that there was no advantage for being stabled at a host track during the live meet. So, for example, if you're stabled at Santa Anita and you're gonna and they're running at Santa Anita, a lot of people took that as positive. Well, he's got to work over the track. Oh, he's stabled at the track. And when you did your study and you and skeptical handicapping, you proved my point that I saw that it, there was no statistical advantage for horses to be stabled at their home track. And I thought that awesome because a lot of the times you know something, you just don't have the statistic for it, and there it was right in front of you in black and white. Well, that's why I like accepting. For example, a lot of people think that first-time starters are intimidated by the rail. So what we did is we took every single first-time starter uh, from the inside post and compared them with every single first-time starter from the outside post. And it turns out, uh, virtually to the penny, there was no difference in the ROI. They didn't make a difference whether the horse was on the rail or on the outside. So that was another one that a lot of people believed turned out not to be true. And uh, here's another one that I thought was quite interesting. Blinkers off versus blinkers on. Now, um, blinkers off, we look, we look at more than 50,000 races where horses have blinkers off and blinkers on. Blinkers off, uh, the return on investment for each dollar bet was 0 0.82. 
blinkers on, it was only zero point seventy. In other words, a twelve cent difference out of, out of every dollar. Wow. Favoring the blinkers on versus blinkers on. When you think about it, it's logical because what are blinkers on for? They're the horse focus. And when you're a thousand pound animal running against a bunch of other thousand pound animals, if you can't focus, you got a big problem. Imagine if you're a tennis player or a golfer. Yeah, I just can't focus. I hit the ball okay. Well, that guy's not going anywhere. So uh, blinkers off turned out to be way more valuable than blinkers on. So things like that we discovered from, from doing the research. And, and that's really interesting because there's a lot of little things like that that I felt like I do know. And, you know, and I have that sort of that sort of intuition that it doesn't really matter. And but the greatest example was during this Gulfstream winter spring meet, uh, winter meet this year at uh, Gulfstream Park. Um, the the inside rail post position was the highest percentage. It was the same thing at fairgrounds, and there was a couple of other tracks that had the highest percentage on the rail sprinting uh, over twenty percent. And I'm watching television, and I hear the talking heads. Well, he drew the rail. You know, and I'm looking, I'm going, dude, the rail's winning at 20%. It's the, it's the, you know, it, it, it does not affect them. But people believe it. And when they believe it, it must be true. Well, it's well, not. You bring, up an you bring up an important point in that you have to see what's going on at the track today. Because uh, tracks are being graded. Sometimes there's rain. Things change. Sometimes it's an inside bias. Sometimes it's outside. Sometimes certain post positions, which were not winning too well previously, are now starting to win. So you have to pay attention to that. You can't look at the post position results from 10 years ago and see what's, uh, uh, how they're doing today. In uh, the same reason that uh, when you're looking at a jockey, you're looking at him today, not what he was when he was in that practice, you know, six years ago. Um, so that's very important to stay on top of things and not just believe things in some generic way because generically post one is not good in sprints at certain race tracks. But at other tracks, it is. So you have to know. You have to know uh, what's going on in your track. Not just use these, uh, you know, generic pieces of information. You want to be as specific as uh, possible. I mentioned jockeys. Let me give you some interesting stat about jockeys. Because a lot of people follow jockeys, and of course, jockeys have some importance. So trainers use a certain jockey or a certain horse as well with them. That's that makes sense. But uh, we, look, we divided jockeys for this particular study into two groups. Jockeys who uh, had more than 20% wins and jockeys who had less than 10% wins. Obviously, most people think that jockeys that win a lot are the best jockeys. Well, we compared those two on all favorites nationwide for four years. Uh, if a, a favorite uh, was written by an over 20% jockey, versus a uh, uh, favorite written by a list of 10% jockey. They were almost to the penny exactly the same. The jockeys made absolutely no difference whatsoever. As this thing from trainers who make a tremendous amount of difference. It makes sense to spend your time studying trainers, not jockeys so much. Wow. That's interesting. Um, so what you're saying is... Not that jockeys don't matter, but they don't have the weight factor, no pun intended, uh, on, on, on these horses, and the weight factor is mostly on the trainers. Right, well, what, what happens is the, the jockeys who have the highest win percentage are the jockeys who, who 
are in the best bonds and ride the two to one shots and the five to two shots and three to one shots. The guys who ride the fifteen to one shots don't win much. So since they don't win much, people perceive them as not being as good. Uh, and that might be a mistake because you're not going to make any money following the top jockey at the track. Uh, we ran a survey of the top jockeys in the country and almost all of them are way over there. Uh, better off not having a favorite jockey, better off concentrating on the horse and the trainer rather than uh, the jockey. But there are other factors as well. I'll give you one, which you're probably aware of, but some other people may, might not. First-time starters with Lasix versus first-time starters with Lasix. We looked at many, many tens of thousands of first-time starters, and the first-time starters with Lasix uh, lost 20%, uh, which is about average. Without Lasix, they lost 35%. That's a huge difference. So pretty much if a horse starts without Lasix, and unless it's by your trainer who often races without Lasix, uh, that's pretty significant. Yeah, that is. Wow. And... Uh... Share some of the stats that really took you back, that didn't, um, you know, that you felt like um, you um, you went wow. Anything that jumped off the page? Well, one of them, Ken and I developed this thing uh, called quality work since racing. It turns out the workouts were much more important than even I thought when I was playing. Uh, here's a stat which I, I found quite interesting. Two-year-old first-time starters, uh, if their final workout was a five-foot-long bullet, more than 3,000 starts, a 6% profit with zero handicapping. I thought that was quite interesting. It's not, uh, say it again. Say it again. Lot, so, say uh, it again. Two-year-old first-time starters, if their last workout was a five-foot-long bullet, 3,000 starts, they made a 6% profit. Uh, I mean, that's without doing any handicapping whatsoever. Not looking at trainers, not, not looking at uh, jockeys, not looking at post position, anything. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. A lot of the stuff we discovered was helped by good workouts. And when horses work regularly and work longer distances and work with speed, that was much better than horses that had uh, uh, kind of spotty workouts, especially for lightly raced horses. When a horse is a seven-year-old gelding, really nobody cares what he does in the workout. But when he's a horse that does not has not raced much, uh, that's how you're going to see improvement in speed. And uh, uh, that we found pretty much throughout the surveys we did, that the workouts are very, very significant, which is one reason I always subscribe to at least two workout reports when I was playing, to do the kind of stuff that you do, which is not just how fast the horse was going, but how the horse looked on the track. Because the public doesn't have access to this information. And anything that is not obvious to the public uh, is helpful to use when you're separating yourself from what the public is doing. Now, you said you, you subscribe to a, a number of uh, workout reports. So now you, you have always believed workouts are very important. Um, the, what were some of the things that you looked for in workouts? Well, you're looking at, uh, particularly, I'd say for lightly raced horses, it's more important than for older horses who race 25 times. Uh, but the uh, lightly raced horses, are they working with some speed? Are they, are they having longer work? So they work in five, six furlongs, four furlongs at least. Three furlong workouts mean almost nothing. But four furlong workouts uh, are helpful, but five furlong workouts, we found the most important thing. Because when the trainers use six furlong workouts, it's mostly for stamina. 
order to prep these uh, route horses. Uh, so the speed of the workout matters. The uh, distance of the workout matters. How frequently the horse is working. If a horse is working every six to eight days, that's a lot better than if he's working, doesn't work again for two weeks, works, then doesn't work again for three weeks. You want horses without gaps. Uh, and you also want to relate that to what the trainer, how the trainer usually works its horses, because some trainers work the horses fast, some work them slow, and some work them in between. And also you're looking for how does the horse usually work, and what does he do after this works. If he throws nothing but bullet works and he finishes ninth all the time, those works don't mean anything. So there's a lot of factors you're looking at, and it's the kind of stuff that you identify in the reports that you do. You know, that's interesting. I, 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 really, I really respect what you just said. Uh, because uh, not so many people uh, are as astute as you are. You have just gone over about everything that I um, look in workouts. I think five furlong workouts are far more important than half miles. Uh, gate works at five eighths tell you a lot about a young horse. Um, how a trainer trains is incredibly important. Um, you know you. Baffert trains them all fast, you know, and a lot of guys that want to see fast works and some trainers don't give you fast works. All they do is give you what, um, you know, I, you know. for example, Marty Jones in California was very slow. Now, you come to the East Coast where you were talking about the five furlongs and the three quarters. Those are more hidden because the clockers here are, you know, the last people they want to help is the handicapper. Um, and that's just calling a spade a spade. The, the clockers on the East Coast are out for themselves and they clock for the horsemen. That's what they believe in. So you get, a, for example, a Todd Pletcher horse working for the Travers named Taprit going 50 and 2, 101 and 1, 13 and 4, and 27 and change, and shows up at a 50 and 2 on the, on, on, on the work tab and in your past performances. The, the, the handicapper has to work harder at it to find that information. California was a lot easier on handicappers. You probably would have to totally agree on that. Well, I, I only played California tracks all the time I was playing. I watched every replay of both uh, Northern and Southern California every day. I really got to know the trainer patterns and uh, uh, each horse individually because this is, uh, horses are individuals and they all perform differently. That includes their workout patterns. Uh, and it includes things like how they look on the track. If you know nothing about how a horse looks on the track, you can't tell anything from looking at it. If you know how the horse usually looks, that's a whole different thing. I'll give you an example. Uh, I used to own harness horses back before I decided I'd rather have money than, than owning horses. Uh, but I had uh, I had a bunch of six or eight horses over the years. And uh, one of them, if you watch the horse warm up, he looked as if he was going directly to his grave. I mean, this guy looked awful on the track. Why doesn't the vet trash him? As soon as the race started, he'd put his head down and try as hard as he could. As soon as he hit the wire, he would limp back to the barn pitifully. I had another horse that loved to race in front until another horse got near him. And as soon as somebody else ranged up on the outside, he said, uh, I don't really like this competition stuff that much. I think I'm finished. So you have to know each horse's uh, individual idiosyncrasies you were talking about the, the clockers. One reason of buying reports, as I think from just looking in the form, is as you have pointed out, not every clocker is 100% honest with every single work they do. Whereas if you're paying for a report, 
you're going to get the best information you can. So uh, to me, if I went to a new circuit, uh, I would certainly find out who is selling Quarkus reports, because that to me is a very important part of figuring out who might be ready to race today. Not what they did six weeks ago in a race, but what are they doing today? And uh, I, I think that's very important. Now, what would you grade that workout report on? Um, I, I can, like, for example, you know, you can see somebody's work and within two seconds, you knowing what I know from what seeing it in the morning, um, know whether it's BS or not, you know, um, and how do you grade the workout reports? Uh, do, do you take well, a little you time? To, you have to be able to trust, you have to be able to trust the clockers. Uh, when they report, and if you've got honest clockers that are selling you information, uh, you're going to believe what they say, and you're going to look less at what the time might be in the form, because I've got reports where it says the horse was listed in the form as working, uh, you know, five furlongs in, uh, in 103, and we caught him in 59 and 2. Uh, so that will happen every occasionally. So it makes sense to spend some money buying workout reports of people that you trust that are doing the works accurately. Because as you pointed out, not every clocker uh, is, is uh, going to give the information uh, that he should to people. The one thing over the years, the DRF, when they had their own clockers way back when, putting the times in, perpetrated some of the worst atrocities on handicappers and racing fans for what they did. Uh, those times were never correct. It was all about them. And that hasn't really changed all that much. And and that mentality still exists. That, you know, and they want to sell their product, but they don't want to give you the right information. And I never understood that. You know, and, and in my experience, I've had more sticks thrown into my spokes. You know, and you and I have discussed this. I've, I've, I've bent your ear about it. You know, where, you know, people don't want you there because you're going to hurt their, you know, they're going to hurt them. And the one point I wanted to ask you about that, you know, people talk about, well, why don't you, why do you sell your stuff? It's going to hurt your price. I don't believe so, Barry, and tell me if I'm wrong. Um, I don't believe that if I do a workout service and I'm honest and I put my information out and let betters do what they do. My price won't get hurt because you have to cash the ticket for you for somebody to hurt your price, right? Well, there's so many factors that go into why people bet on horses, of which uh, getting somebody's workout report is one small thing. And even a handicapper that uh, is a serious handicapper you're still looking at a bunch of other things besides. I'll tell you a story about, quote, hurting your price, which I never believed. Uh, the last job I had was 1987 in the summer uh, at, at uh, uh, Fairplex in Pomona, or '88, well, anyway, a long time ago. Uh, and uh, what I did was uh, they hired me as the, uh, uh, they said, we're going to have a track handicapper for this meet. It was a two-month meet. I said, sure, I'll do it. Uh, and I was still one of the biggest players at the track. What I did is I put out a four-page sheet each day, giving free to everybody that walked in the track uh, and had my selections, my comments on every horse, the odds I thought each horse uh, deserved to be, and uh, uh, statistics.
logistical stuff, all the stuff I knew I put in I put in that four page sheet, which was given free to every single person that came into bed. And uh, I still wound up winning almost six percent for the meet. So go figure. That's with all my stuff handed out here. So the fact that you give information or sell information to people doesn't necessarily hurt a price because a lot of people don't use the information or they use it as part of other stuff. Or maybe you guys have, you know, buys your stuff but it's a twenty dollar better and somebody else is betting a thousand never looks at the workout reports. So I would never worry about that. I I don't care who knew who I liked, uh, it's just one factor. So I wouldn't worry about that. I'll give you a great example. January 5th, 2012. In Florida, we're clocking. I loved the horse. The first time starter for Wayne Catalano. I had all the right info. And it was info from three months before where I had seen, which I've cashed a lot of tickets on horses with information like that. And he's sitting at 35 to 1. He wins by $72. On my sheet, I had it in bold, red, big letters, best bet, the exacta, the trifecta. More people wrote me and said, great call. I looked at it and I thought, huh? And just went on to the next race. Uh, So not only do people sometimes don't trust the information, they don't trust themselves to trust it. And... Sometimes they want to know, well, if he likes it, why doesn't everyone else like it? Uh, why does the horse got a big price? And you right. can't be afraid about horses at big prices. Just because the horse is a big price. So what? If you do this long enough, usually you'll know why a horse is a big price. Maybe he finished in the back last time. He finished in the back because he didn't get a situation. Uh, maybe uh, the horse's overall record is good. Maybe the jockey doesn't want too much. So there's a lot of reasons why a horse might go up at a big price. And if you're scared off by prices, what are you going to play six to five shots all the time? You can't make any money doing that. Right. So you've got to look for things that people are not looking at, and one of them is workouts. Now, Barry, I really want to tell people how to get skeptical handicapping. I think it's worth. It's a book they need to have on their on their handicapping shelf. Where can they buy skeptical handicapping? Well, they can go to my website, which is trpublishing.com. Easy to remember because it stands for Thoroughbred Racing, trpublishing.com. That's got all the information, including my phone number, if they want to order by phone. If uh, they uh, order directly through me, then uh, I'll give them a discount. Just all i got to do is mention I heard it on Royal. Uh, I'll give them $10 off the price of the book, which will make everybody happy and I'll autograph it besides and include free shipping. So that should make everybody happy. If, if people uh, don't want to go through that, they can just go to Amazon, order the book directly from Amazon. It's called The Skeptical Handicapper, and the subtitle is Using Data and Brains to Win at the Racetrack. But it's a skeptical handicapper. They can just uh, put in that, and Amazon will have the information, or they can go to trpublisher.com and maybe give me a call later and order directly from me. Hey, they would be well served to call you. And get a chance to speak with you. You've always been a fantastic person with people. Even though you say you're not a people person. Yes, you are. You know, you've always been super kind to me and, and incredibly warm, you know, to, to, you know, and I'm not the most, you know, warm and fuzzy person sometimes. I can be prickly, can I? You know? Um, well, you have, a, you have opinion. There's nothing wrong with having opinions. Uh, and not everybody's opinion has to be exactly the same. That's, that's life. Uh, but I think if you treat people the way you want to be treated, 
and of course if you treat customers the way you would want to be treated as a customer yeah. you're not going to have a lot of problems i learned that from you I, i'll bend over backwards for my customers you know and and well, thank you you know people are out there know what i'm talking about I, you know i will bend over backwards i might be a little prickly but i'll bend over backwards you know <laughs> I'll be prickly while bending over backwards. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and the one thing I wanted to ask you in closure, um, I'm hoping to have you on again uh, in the near future. Uh, maybe we can do something that uh, a new promotion you'll have. But can they buy your other books if they're interested by calling you? Uh, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they can buy Let me see people race track, uh, which of course is still selling. And you know, after all these years, uh, people ask me, "Was I going to have an updated version of that?" I said, "Nope, two and two still equals four. So uh, once you understand the math of gambling and what makes a horse an overlay and why another horse is not a good bet, uh, you're really going to improve your bottom line. It's not just picking winner; you're figuring out what to do with your selections and your opinions that's going to determine how successful you are. Barry, you are a wealth of information. One more question, because I, I, I just love to hear and what you have to say. What is your favorite part in skeptical, the skeptical handicapper? Well, I guess if you had a, if I had a bit more part, I would have to say it was the, uh, the forward, which, which I call We Are Horse Players, where I review a lot of the things that happen I can't wait for get people to call you, talk to you, buy the book, and uh, get a chance to know Barry Meadow like I know Barry Meadow. Barry, you're awesome. I love you, brother. Well, uh, I really appreciate it. It's, uh, we, we've had quite a good ride in this business for a long time, and uh, uh, not too many people would get to take the thing they love and make that their career. Both of us have been very lucky in being able to do that. Well, I got you to thank because you molded me from the beginning and uh, you took me under your wing. I know I frustrated you in a lot of ways, but uh, in a lot of ways, we had a lot of fun together too. Keep it up, Barry. I Don't be such a stranger. I didn't talk to you for a while. Don't be a stranger. I'd love to hear from you and we'd love to have you back on. Thank you very much. I'd be more than happy to do so. Go to, TR, talking, go to trpublishing.com and give Barry a call. And get that book. I'm telling you, I read it. I read it in two days. I loved it. it and, and it was a lot of fun to do. You'll learn a lot. Barry, have a great 4th of July. And uh, everybody out there, thanks for the last 40 minutes of handicapping with Barry Meadow. Thanks a lot, Mike.